Well, it was in the 1960s, and a guy named Jim Cimbala, I have mentioned him uh, at least once before, matter of fact, told a story uh, that he told of something that happened in their service in New York City. Uh, it was one Easter morning several years ago that I, that I told one of Cimbala's stories, but Cimbala uh, has written a few, a few books. And uh, they tell, he tells a lot of stories about, about his experience in ministry in New York City. But uh, one that I've been rereading this week called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He tells the story of in the 1960s uh, that his father-in-law was overseeing uh, several different congregations. And so uh, his father-in-law had encouraged Jim. He saw something in Jim that Jim did not see in himself. And some of you may have had situations like that where someone kind of pulled you aside and said, you know, I think you're capable of something. And then, you know, spoke some kind of positive, uh, you know, positive thoughts into you. Uh, encouraging you to develop something about yourself. And so he, he told Jim, he said, you know, I really think we've got this congregation in Newark that needs a preacher, and I really think you should step in and, and begin preaching there. And so on a part-time basis, Jim did just that, and eventually it became something he was doing full-time, as speaking at this congregation, preaching for these folks in, in Newark, New Jersey. And then at, at one point then, uh, his father-in-law reached out to him and said, Jim, we've got a congregation over in Brooklyn, and man, they're struggling. And he said, I really wish you would go over there and encourage that preacher. I wish you'd go over and just uh, you know, visit with them these next few weeks, and, then, and, and maybe you can encourage him. Uh, and so Jim j did just that. Their, the service times were different enough that he could preach in Newark and then drive over in, into New York City and uh, attend these services in Brooklyn. And about the third week, that preacher says to Jim after the service is over, he says, well, Jim, he says, if you pass on to your father-in-law, I've taken a job out of state. And he said, today's my last Sunday. And so Jim, immediately after the service, calls his father-in-law, and his father-in-law now once again encourages Jim, hey Jim, you've been attending both services, I think you could preach for both congregations, at least for a while. Well, after doing this for a while, and keep in mind, this is Brooklyn in 1972. Uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn. If you've been to New York City, you know that Times Square is like a version of, of Disneyland. I mean, but in 1972, it was nothing like that. And, and especially this area of Brooklyn, it was, it was urban decay had set in in this area. And so you had people uh, that were dealing with alcoholism, people that were heroin addicts living in the neighborhood, uh, drug dealing going on on some of the street corners nearby, prostitutes working within a couple of blocks of where this church met. And so all this is going on, and the congregation, by the way, is all of 15 people. 15 people on Sunday morning was typical. Their contribution was about $85 on Sunday morning. 
And then you multiply that times typically four Sundays a month and it wasn't enough to pay the mortgage and the utilities on the building. But yet Jim and his wife felt compelled. They felt like God was calling them to work full time, to move to Brooklyn and work full time for this congregation. And so that's what they did. And so uh, we see a story in the Bible of someone who is overwhelmed by a situation because Jim Cimbalo was certainly overwhelmed by the situation. It's like, God, I feel like you've called me to this place, but I have no idea how we're going to make this work. He had no idea how they were going to keep the doors open for this church. And in Nehemiah 1, we see a situation where our, our character that's the focus of this book is overwhelmed because the exile had taken place sometime before and now we're at that point where, uh, where the Persian king has given permission for the Jews to start returning to Jerusalem, returning to Judah and going back to where their families were from. The exile lasted for 70 years. And so people had now uh, started going back to Jerusalem. And we open in Nehemiah chapter 1, in those first few verses we find that Nehemiah gets a report from some folks who had been in Jerusalem and they come back and he says, well, what's going on there? Tell me about it. And they say, wow, it's not good. The holy city still lies in ruin. And even though people have returned, the wall and the city gates have not been repaired. They've not been restored. And so uh, what he hears about is a, a city that is precious to the Jewish people, but yet, like any ancient city, it needed to be protected. And there was absolutely no protection. The city was completely vulnerable because they had no gates, they had no walls surrounding the city. And so then we pick up with Nehemiah's reaction to this news in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. 
Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Now, Nehemiah responds with this situation that has him completely overwhelmed, completely distressed. He responds by calling out to God. He responds by a period of days, we're told here, days that he prayed and fasted. And then we hear something, don't we, church? We hear a prayer of humility. We hear a prayer of repentance. And he says, you know, we have not been the kind of people that you have called us to be. Even those of us over here in exile. Because that's exactly what a lot of the Jews did, church. They did not remain faithful. We read about people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow down. But we read about them not because they were the Jewish norm, but because they were the exception. Most of the people assimilated into the pagan society in which they found themselves over a period of time. And so just as last week when we began this series on revival, we looked at that story of uh, Josiah in 2 Kings and how the, the book of the law, namely Deuteronomy, is rediscovered after a period of time. And so then he is, he is in distress over this. Wow. We have not been celebrating the Passover like we should have. We have not been remembering God and what He did for our ancestors. We have not been honoring God with our sacrifices and our covenant of love the way we should have been all this time. And so Nehemiah is having that same kind of moment here. He's having this moment where he says, Wow, God, i got nowhere else to turn knowing I'm sure full well that the pagan gods that were worshipped in that place were going to be absolutely useless. And so turning back to God with this, with this uh, air of repentance and saying forgive us and like Moses so many years before him, Nehemiah is standing in the gap He is standing in the gap between God and God's people. And he's saying, remember God, remember you love your people. And and just remember that here we are, we're turning back to you. 
Nehemiah confident that there were some, at least some, somewhere that never turned away. But then now, you know, saying, God, coming back to you, turning back to you, please, as you said you would, please hear this prayer. And that's where we are sometimes, isn't it, church? That we get to a place sometimes and we, we call out to God. Which anytime you read call out to God, they called on God or called out to God, especially in the Old Testament. What it really means is they cried out to God. Now I can call out to someone. But if I cry out to someone, isn't that a different tone? Isn't that a different mood in what I'm conveying there? And so that's what he's doing here, is he is crying out to God. Saying, oh God, things are not in good shape. And I understand full well is is what I hear him saying. I understand full well why you have allowed them to get this way. Understanding now full well why why the exile happened in the first place. Because God's children had turned against God. And God finally said, okay, time and time again I've bailed you out, but I'm going to have to just exercise some tough love. And I'm going to just give you over into the hands of your enemies. And they're going to come, they're going to take your people, they're going to haul them off, and they're going to destroy your towns and your villages and your cities. Even that city which is holiest of all. That of Jerusalem is finally taken captive and destroyed decades before. And so he's upset because he hears about the wall. Now, we might say, well, you know, it's just a wall. You know, it's, it's block and mortar, brick and mortar. It's something and mortar. And so it's just a wall. Walls to us can be cosmetic. They can be decorative. But to an ancient city like Jerusalem, that wall was so much more. That wall protected the city. That wall helped give that city an identity. Those gates meant that, hey... If you mean us harm, we're, we're meant to keep, we mean to keep you out. We're going to protect this place. There is something holy about this place. And so that's why Nehemiah is in this state of distress. And so if you read on in the book of Nehemiah, you find that there he is, cupbearer to the king, which means he is essentially that person that the king trusts with his life. Because that cupbearer is the one who's going to taste the food and taste the beverage and then when it's deemed safe will put that cup in the hand of the king. And so in doing so, the cupbearer is an advisor to the king. Some of the king sees on a daily basis. 
And so uh, it is it is soon after this period of prayer and fasting that Nehemiah is there before the king, and the king immediately notices the the look on Nehemiah's face. He notices his countenance. And so he brings up and he says, Why are you troubled? And he explains to the king what's going on. And the king says, You know, I have been releasing wave after wave of your people back to that land that you came from. And so why don't you go? Why don't you go and take workers with you? Why don't you go? And I will give you out of our treasury everything you need to rebuild the wall over in Jerusalem. So he has the king's support. He has the king's financial backing for this undertaking. And then what we see though is if you read the book of Nehemiah, there are obstacles in the way. There are people nearby that know that the city of Jerusalem is vulnerable and they like it that way. And then they see folks show up and start rebuilding those walls and erecting those gates once again. And they start mocking them. Who do they think they are? Do they, are they really going to carry out this task? Oh my goodness, how long is that going to take them to rebuild the walls around this city? Who do they think they are? And then, even coming around and threatening them. And so Nehemiah gets to the point that he takes Jewish families and he has them physically stand in the gaps of the wall. He, he positions these families to be in the low places of the wall and stand there and face down the people that are threatening them. And threat after threat, mocking after mocking, they keep building the wall. Does God hear their prayers? Oh, I think we know that God heard the prayer of Nehemiah when the king is the one who brings up, why, why the long face? Why do you look so troubled? And then tells him, this person that he trusts with his life, which means now he's got to trust somebody else with his life every day, and says, why don't you go back and I'll give you everything you need to rebuild that wall. And they did it, church, in 52 days. In less than eight weeks, the wall of Jerusalem is rebuilt. The city is once again fortified. And now the people can go to the city and they can go and make sacrifices because the altar is rebuilt. And now they can return to this state of being in a covenant relationship with Yahweh the God who saves. When Nehemiah was so overwhelmed, he responded, church, by praying. He responded by turning to God, asking forgiveness of his sins and the sins of others, and saying, God, without you we can't do anything. 
without you, we've got nowhere else to turn. In Jim Simbola's book, he describes coming up in one of those months where they don't have enough money to make the banknote. It's due the next day. And he's thinking, man, we're about to default. And so what does he do? He calls on God. And he tells the story that there I was crying out to God, sitting at my desk, upstairs in my office, and I'm crying out to God. And I'm thinking to myself, well, is with the way I have prayed, with the, the fervency that I have delivered this prayer, I'm going to go down those stairs, and in that mail slot, there is going to be the money that we need to make the banknote tomorrow. And he goes down and looks at the mail. No, it's not there. And he's thinking, thinking, wow, what have I done wrong? Did, did, didn't God hear me? Why would God want to close this church? I, After all, I felt like God was calling us to this church. That we left a church out in suburbia and we came to this church amidst the urban decay and everything that was going on at the time. You know, why would God just let, let it fail? And then he remembered, oh wait, we've got a P.O. box. He says, I'm going to go over to the post office and I know it's going to be there. And he's already saying, thank you, God. Thank you. And he walks across the lobby of that post office and he opens up that P.O. box and nothing. Nothing is in there. And so then he's walking the blocks back to uh, the church building. He says he's crossing Atlantic Avenue. He's looking at all the traffic going by and he's thinking all these people here, all these people who for all I know need a relationship with the Lord, God, why would you allow this church to close? And then he walks back into the church building and while he was gone to the post office, there's that envelope that showed up with two $50 bills. Has no idea who it came from. But it was enough, yes, to make the bank note. Now, this is not the health and wealth gospel, okay, church? That's not where this is going. That you pray and, you know, God is suddenly an ATM in your life. Uh, It doesn't work that way. But Jim knew that God had called them there. And so that's why he was perplexed. That's why he was saying, God, I know you're going to come through somehow, some way. And then there it was. And yes, something like that happens. And if it's ever happened to you like it has to me, I cry out and God somehow shows up in ways that I can least expect it. It's that affirmation that God is real. It's that affirmation that God loves us enough and that God does hear our prayers. And so he then moves forward with this congregation.
And so little by little, they begin growing. And over time, they're able to minister to that community, minister to the addicts, minister to the homeless, minister to the people right there in their neighborhood. And then when it comes time to sell the building because they've now outgrown this dilapidated building, he puts it on the market and somebody walks in the door and says, understand you want to sell the building? And he said, yeah. And the guy looks around and says, how much do you want for it? This is back in the 70s, mind you. He said 90000 He's kind of nervous. The guy's going to balk and say, no way, that's too much. Not worth it. And the guy says, okay, I'll take it. And so Simba looks at him and says, well, how long is it going to take to you to arrange finance? He says, no financing. He's a cash buyer. And so $90,000, and that gives them what they need to make the down payment on the new place and to purchase that new larger building that will accommodate what is now a growing congregation. I'm leaving something out because at some point Symbola says you know what we got where we are by praying but it needs to be more than just me praying and so he dedicated one night of the week that this is the night we're going to gather for prayer and he talks in his book about some of those great preachers of the past like Charles Spurgeon, the British uh, evangelical preacher who was known to say, you know, you want to know the health of a church? Don't count the number of people that show up on Sunday morning. Count the number of people that show up at a designated time for prayer. And so they chose a night of the week and that became their night of the week. So you tell me, church, what's going to be our night of the week? What night of the week is the whole and wall church of Christ going to gather for prayer? No way we're going to find a time that meets with everybody's schedule, are we? It's not going to happen. But for lack of a better time, how about 6.30 on Wednesday night? How about 30 minutes early? We'll start there. If you want to come and meet me in the side auditorium, we're going to have a time where we simply pray. Where we let whatever the Spirit has put on our heart to come out of our mouth. And we're going to gather and we're going to pray. And if it's just me, well, it's not just me. Because I know the Holy Spirit's going to show up. But I have confidence that Wednesday at 6.30, I'm not going to be alone in that room. And then we can find another night of the week if that's what we need to do. And we can find a different time if that's what we need to do. But I'm calling on the whole and walled Church of Christ... If we're going to grow this auditorium, grow to fill this auditorium again, if we're going to be able to minister as effectively to our community as I think God calls us to, then we need to be people who spend more time in prayer.
And so that's where we're going to start. In, well, yes, we're talking about revival. And revival is defined, as we mentioned last week, as the work of the Holy Spirit in restoring the people of God to a more vital spiritual life, witness, and work by prayer and in the Word after repentance in crisis for a spiritual decline. It's a time of renewal, a time of reawakening. In Hebrews chapter 5, the Hebrews writer tells me something that struck me this week about Jesus. Hebrews 5 beginning with verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now church, i got to read that verse again. Let those words sink into us. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a a name that we read in the book of Hebrews. We also see it mentioned in the Old Testament. But what it basically means is, and that gets into a whole other conversation about the line of Aaron and, uh, and that kind of stuff, but suffice it to say, when we read that name, Melchizedek, what we're supposed to see there is you know, the rightful king. We are supposed to see rightful king. Melchizedek was someone who was designated a king and a priest. And so when we read that name, we think about Jesus being the ultimate king and the ultimate priest. That there would be no high priest that came after him. That he was the high priest once and forevermore. He was the rightful king. Sometimes there would be a new king and there would be people that would want to dispute their reign. They would want to dispute their place. As the king. I saw that on, I think it's CNN, there's going to be a, uh, a documentary that's coming out about the Murdoch family, the people that own Fox News and, and own uh, lots of media outlets, a, what we would call a media empire. And so it's like, okay, who of the Murdoch children is going to be put in place to succeed? Dad, when Dad passes away or when Dad decides to step down. And so there can be within families disputes about who ought to be in charge. 
And in ancient of times, there were disputes among rightful kingships. And so when we see the name Melchizedek, we should simply think Jesus as the rightful king. But think about Jesus in his earthly ministry taking the time to pray, taking the time to cry out, the Hebrew writer tells us. With what, church? With tears. That Jesus was crying out. When he would pray, it would be to the point that he would weep. That's how much he was putting into these prayers on behalf of other people. Church family, if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to be people who are dedicated to prayer. Last week, in the first week of this series on revival, we looked at personal revival starts with the Word of God. But then the next step is by being people who pray. Prayer is not simply some type of secondary or thing we do over here on the side. Prayer is absolutely central to our faith. Name one person in your life that you have a close and valued relationship with that you never talk to. Let me say that again. Think of one person in your life that you have a close and valued relationship with them, but you never talk to them. Or you seldom, occasionally talk to them. No, if you have a valued relationship with someone, aren't you communicating with them on a regular basis? Isn't that how your relationship became close in the first place? Is by being together... By communicating? It's no different with God. We want a relationship with God. We spend time with God. We communicate with God. And then we wait patiently, listening for God to communicate back. Not with an audible voice, but with a movement in our spirit that we know is of God. How do we know? Because we're spending time with God. That's how we know, church. That is how we know. So that church that started with 15 people is now a massive congregation. And you ask Jim Cimbala today, how did they get there? Well, they got there by prayer. I don't know how large a congregation God intends the Hornwall Church of Christ to be. I don't know how many ministries the Lord is going to expect us to undertake in the years to come. But in order for us to know the answer to that, we have to be a congregation who takes the time to pray. We have to be a congregation who says, Lord, show us who you want to be. Send us whoever you want to send us. And Lord, help us, show us how to reach whoever it is that we need to reach for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your kingdom. Maybe this is it. 
Maybe, maybe this is it. I love who I see. But I really think that some of these empty seats could be filled with more precious souls. I really think these empty seats could be filled with people who need a closer relationship, a closer walk with God. I really believe some of these empty seats can be filled with people who will be inspired to undertake some kind of ministry effort where they go outside of these walls and they are involved in reaching people for the Lord right here at the Hohenwald Church of Christ. But we're never going to know the answer to all that unless we start fighting from our knees. That we start being people who pray to God. And so I invite you to join me at 6.30 this Wednesday and we'll start that aspect of our journey together. Luke one thirty seven. For nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe that, church? Nothing is impossible with God. Some translations say, no word from God will ever fail. Either way, that is a powerful verse of Holy Scripture right there. And that's something for us to hang our prayer life on. If God wants it to happen, it will happen. But it doesn't happen without us submitting to Him. Without us calling out to Him, crying out to Him. In our personal prayer life, but in our prayer life as a gathered people. Let's do this together, church. And if you're here today and you have not yet proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord, we give you the opportunity to do that this morning. The waters of baptism are available for you to begin walking this day as a new creation. If you've got something weighing on you that you just want to come and ask for the prayers of this body of Christ, then the invitation is for that reason as well. Let's stand together and sing. Oh.